You know, in a way, isn't each of us just a Borg queen looking for her locutus? I don't like that. Let's do it again. This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular, where we're definitely not Swedish, but we will add your biological and technological distinctiveness to our own. I am Glenn Butler, the one who is many and head of this podcast collective, and today we are back in the Star Trek Vintage Vault to take a look at the eighth installment in the film series, First Contact. Here with me, as always, is Mr. Scott Butler. Scott... If you were the one to represent humanity in our first contact with intelligence as we know it, what song would you play for the aliens? Any song I chose would be sure to sabotage our diplomatic relations for years to come. (laughs) That's a power move. God, what do you think the Vulcans would make of all this? I don't know, would this be that much worse than Ooby Dooby? I mean, the first, the Vulcans land, and the first, well, the first thing Cochran does is grab their hand, which is supposedly a taboo amongst a touch-sensitive telepathic race. And then the next thing he does is he introduces them to rot gut whiskey and loud rock music. How does this first contact not lead to centuries of hostilities like first contact with the Klingons did? Well, it's a very good thing that First Contact is with the Vulcans out of all the alien races, right? <laughs> They're the most tolerant. They're just sort of patting Zephram Cochran on the head and saying, Okay, that's that's good. Fine, yes. Show us the warp ship. <laughs> well, this is the sort of First Contact story we get in Star Trek, right? We're unlike however many other sci-fi stories where First Contact is disastrous and the aliens want to kill and conquer us and take over our planet and use our resources and all that, the Vulcans want to be friends because of science. (laughs) Isn't friendship an emotional response? Oh, okay. They wish to maintain diplomatic relations with all sufficiently advanced species. Because of science. Because of science. Shouldn't we all because of science? We should do many things because of science. But that's that's one of our other episodes, maybe. <laughs> this story, of course, comes along as part of Star Trek's 30th anniversary. It was just a few episodes ago we were looking at Star Trek's 25th anniversary. Now, just because of my age, this is the anniversary I remember a little better. 
You know, they, they didn't have some of the marketing stuff they did for the 25th, but they did have another two TV shows on the air at the time. True. But they never came out with a video game called Star Trek 30th Anniversary. No, they just did that big gala slash awards show on UPN. It wasn't an awards show, but it was kind of formatted like one. With a bunch of celebrities reading uncomfortable scripted segments. I don't believe I remember that. You don't remember that? No. No, Joan Collins came out and talked about how when she heard she was going to be on Star Trek, she thought she was going to get some skimpy Bill Tice outfit, and then she was playing Edith Keeler. Joan Collins hated Star Trek. Like, she tried her best to have it erased from her history. Yeah, well, they were doing the anniversary show, and they roped her in for that. Jesus. But yeah, they they did the big anniversary thing featuring lots of lots of celebrities and and scenes from the Voyager and DS9 anniversary episodes and the latest trailer for this movie. The trailer for this movie was a trip and a half. The trailer I remember for this movie is the first one, the teaser trailer that didn't have any footage from the actual movie. None at all. I mean, it was all pieced together from different next-gen episodes. The trailer for this movie was stitched together with footage from Best of Both Worlds, footage from All Good Things, footage from The Emissary with scenes at Wolf 359. Yes. And I think they used stock footage of the Voyager at one point as well. It was just a mishmash of various clips that they apparently had available, and they stitched them together and made them a Star Trek First Contact trailer, and when we saw it, we were excited as hell! Oh yeah. This is gonna be awesome! They're gonna go travel in time to the All Good Things, they're gonna go to Wolf 359, they're gonna go to Best of Both Worlds, they're gonna have Cisco in it! They're gonna... Wow! This is gonna be like this amazing, time-hopping, tapestry-of-universe extravaganza! This is gonna be incredible! I think they had clips of Farpoint in it at one point. I know they had Best of Both Worlds and All Good Things. They might have had other TNG episodes. But it was like, wow, this is gonna be this amazing, time-hopping, tapestry-of-existence... Time travel adventure extravaganza. It's going to be awesome. And it turns out, no, that's just those are the random clips of the television show that they were able to lay their hands on to slap together for a trailer. Well, they figured out they were going to do a Borg movie and they featured most of the Borg clips. Generations. There were also clips from Generations. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, I was expecting this like incredible time-hopping madcap thing. And it turns out, no, nah, it's just the Borg show up on this brand new dreary ship they have. Do you want to get into that already? The new grungy Borg invade their new dreary ship. Well, as we mentioned in the Generations episodes, there are some changes that they made going to the big screen. And then for First Contact, they got to design everything from the ground up. Yeah, so instead of just looking like a normal ship where all the lights broke, it now looks like the most depressing ship to serve on ever. Everything is really, really, really dark gray and really, really, really dimly lit. All I can think of watching the Enterprise E in this movie is like people in Scandinavia that have to spend 
like when they live in Scandinavia in the winter or they live in Alaska through the winter and they don't see the sun for three months and they have to spend like two hours a day sitting in front of a special UV light to try to avoid like lack of sun related to depression. What do these poor souls serving on the Enterprise E have to do? Good lord! Get uh, vitamin D injections from Dr. Crusher and spend time in sunny places on the holodeck? Yeah, I was gonna say, the only place that's like brightly lit is the holodeck. Depending on your program. Well, I think the most significant thing about the Enterprise E, at least the interiors, is that this is a ship designed completely for the needs of this one movie. As opposed to when you're building a TV set, it has to be adaptable to whatever stories you're going to do. For this movie, it was just, here's the script, here's what we're doing in this movie, design what we need for this. Yeah, I guess for the sort of faux horror movie they're making with the Borg in this movie, having a really dark, dreary, dimly lit ship contributes to that horror movie atmosphere, but... They had been planning on making more Next Generation movies after this, right? Well, absolutely. This was an ongoing thing. I mean, not all Next Generation movies are going to be horror movies that require a dreary, dimly lit set. Well, maybe they can light it differently. We'll keep track of that in the other movies. They can't change the fact that every wall is really, really dark gray. One of the things that stood out to me as far as designing the ship for the one movie is that now the corridors are wide enough to stage entire fight scenes in. (laughs) As opposed to on the TV soundstage where, yeah, we're just going to tuck the corridor over here so some extras can walk through it. One thing that struck me is they have so many new sets in this movie. How is it that all the original series movies had, like, no budget. Like, they have to, like, use random other movie set for the Klingon Bridge. They have to use the TNG sets for the hallway. They have to use the TNG sets for engineering because they can't build their own set. And meanwhile, to make this Next Generation movie, they got 800 brand new sets, including this, like, giant engineering cathedral. How come Scotty's got to stand in front of the Next Generation warp set, but for first contact they could build this like giant five-story engineering cathedral well this is star trek kind of riding high in the mid-90s you know they have a budget to make a whole new enterprise a whole new set of sets because it's expected that this is going to be an ongoing concern they're going to you know pump out one of these every couple of years the contrast just really struck me Not only that they have so many new sets, but that they're so huge. I mean, the next-gen sets, a lot of them were built on the bones of the sets built for the motion picture. Which were in turn built on the bones of the sets built for Phase (laughs) 2. So the budget sharing kind of goes deep here. But by the mid-90s, you have an entire soundstage for DS9... Voyager's sets were built on the bones of the next-gen sets, except the next-gen sets were basically destroyed. I don't think they really kept any of those for the Voyager sets, especially since they trashed so many of them in Generations. Meh. 
And then they established a whole new location and all new sets for the new Enterprise because it's expected that this is going to be a very profitable ongoing series. And in 1996, you can't really blame them for that expectation. We will, of course, track how that goes as well. Yeah. And of course, in addition to the sets that are dark and depressing, the uniforms have been bled of almost all of their color now. The uniforms wouldn't be that bad if it wasn't for the general dreariness of the entire rest of the set. Because they use those same uniforms on DS9 and they don't seem drab and depressing there. Well, I think what you're calling drab and depressing, I would place a greater emphasis on this movie being one that takes itself very, very seriously. And so all of the aesthetic decisions kind of tie into that. I suppose that's true, but that's sort of a chicken-and-the-egg thing, though, isn't it? I suppose. Because when you think of the funny scenes in this movie, they're all on the planet, which is brightly lit. Yeah, they Because they're out in the sun. Yeah, they definitely create a contrast there between the dark horror movie-style Enterprise sets, and we're, and we're going to talk about the genre drift in this movie, and all of the outdoor shooting they get to do for the planet-side scenes. So do they have all the humorous scenes on the planet because that's where it's brightly lit, or is that where it's brightly lit because that's where they put all the humorous scenes? Is the Enterprise dark because that part of the movie is really, really serious, or does that part of the movie end up being really, really serious because it's so dark? In a way, it's a lot harder to do less serious, more farcical scenes with the Borg, don't you think? Well, you could, but not in this story. You could, but it would kind of undermine it a lot. Well, considering what the Borg would go on to become on Voyager. Yeah, I don't know if they ever did any comedy episodes with the Borg. They, they found ways to undermine adversaries without putting them in comedy episodes. Believe me, comedy episodes would not undermine the adversaries any worse. The Ferengi in Rascals were not undermined any worse than the Borg by the end of Voyager. Than the Herogen after like their third appearance on Voyager. Yeah, the Ferengi by the time of Rascals were already entirely done. They were entirely done by the time of like the last outpost. No, the last outpost was their first episode. They were completely done by like the time of the battle. Nah, I don't think so. They were they were fine. I mean, they weren't like the giant big bad that they had apparently originally been envisioned as, but they weren't like useless. It wasn't like they showed up and you just started laughing at them. It wasn't like, oh, how are we going to defeat the Ferengi for the 475th time like it was with the Borg on Voyager? That does kind of match up with my memory of Voyager, but there's a lot of Voyager I didn't see. To be fair, because there are people who like Voyager. There aren't just people who like Voyager. There are people I, I know, and probably people listening to this podcast who like Voyager, and I don't mean any disrespect. The Enterprise, they did redesign so that it's designed to look dark and dreary and dim and depressing. The Defiant, much like the Enterprise D in Generations, they just blew out all the lights. Yeah, they definitely wanted to make that seem like the Enterprise in the last movie, a little more cinematic, meaning a little more dark, apparently. Which, I'm not even entirely sure, because the Defiant's in the middle of a battle where they've basically just been all but destroyed. I was just going to say that, So yeah. it's entirely plausible that literally all the lights broke. 
rather than just some set designer went around and turned them all off. Also, kudos for putting the Defiant on the movie. That was cool. Yeah, absolutely. That was a really cool thing to see. You know, since, of course, there's this kind of shared universe with the TV series and the next-gen movies going on at the same time. And, of course, they had to find some way to get Worf back to get in the movie. Yeah, apparently whoever is the Enterprise's new tactical officer isn't worth shit. Because as soon as Worf comes on board, Picard's like, Mr. Worf, we could use some help at tactical. Frankly, since you didn't come back from the Enterprise-E, we haven't had any worthwhile crew member taking that post. Meanwhile, Adam Scott is helming the Defiant. Because <laughs> apparently they couldn't get, like, random ensign from DS9. Or I guess he is a random ensign from DS9, but they couldn't get any recognizable person from DS9. That might have been a little distracting. I mean, if it was someone we already knew, we might have spent the rest of the movie going, you know, hey, shouldn't Kira be on the away mission too? Yeah, well, did Dax get assimilated? <laughs> I haven't seen her in like two hours. Yeah, that might have been a little much. Maybe they were all busy, and when Starfleet sent the call, hey, we're assembling the fleet to engage the Borg, they just sent Worf off with the ship. <laughs> of course Worf orders ramming speed. Although perhaps today is a good day to die is not the best way to boost crew morale. Well, at least not on a Starfleet ship. <laughs> at that point, Adam Scott sort of looks up at the camera, like, this is why they didn't send Dax on this mission. <laughs> well, Dax would have argued back with him. <laughs> you know, I know you don't countermand the orders of the person in, in command of the ship, but I got lives to lead here. Uh, I'm trying to remember exactly where this is in terms of the DS9 chronology. If I remember correctly, this would have been approximately fifth season, right? Yeah. So, we may or may not be at a point where Dax could have threatened Worf, where if, if you make me go ramming speed against the Borg Cube, you're sleeping on the couch for a week. Man, that's almost stereotypical enough to make it into a 90s Star Trek script. <laughs> that's it. You're sleeping on the couch and I'm doing the Hawaiian dance with that dude from my engagement party. Wow. <laughs> uh, let's just hit pretty quickly on the design of the new starships. Uh, most importantly, the new Enterprise, but also the whole fleet of ships we get at the battle. Yeah, there's this whole collection of new Starship classes we've never seen before that all of a sudden show up at this battle with the Borg Cube. Which sort of, at the time, it led me to theorize that they were all sort of new ship designs that had been come up with in the last eight years or so, specifically with the Borg in mind, much like the Defiant was. And that's why all of a sudden they're all here to fight the Borg Cube. But that's, you know, my speculation as to... Some reason other than, hey, we're making a movie, let's design a whole slew of new kinds of ships. Which, you know, is, is the main motivation, because you don't want to have a whole ton of old Excelsiors and Mirandas like you would on any of the TV shows. Well, I was just going to say, like, years later on DS9, when they fight a war, the war is fought with a bunch of Mirandas and Excelsiors. And... Yeah, that is a little weird that even years later they couldn't use the new ships on DS9. I'm not quite sure 
what the decision-making process was there. But at any rate, we have all of these ships that... It's a reasonable assumption that they were all made like the Defiant as Starfleet's warships, now that Starfleet's in the business of making warships, that all really have that look to them. A lot of them are smaller, other than, of course, the new Enterprise. And the Akira class. Is the Akira that big, too? Yeah. Okay. But a lot of them are smaller. A lot of them are more compact. The design aesthetic of Starfleet ships kind of takes a shift here. You have the production design department, Herman Zimmerman, John Eaves, Doug Drexler, I think, came in later during Voyager, but you have this design crew that had been designing a, a lot of things throughout Next Gen, now into DS9, and with all of these new ships all at the same time in First Contact, they kind of make a statement that this is what modern Starfleet ships are going to look like now. Which is then carried forward a little more in some of the new ships they designed for Voyager in the coming years. Yeah, I'm not really a fan of a lot of the new designs. Yeah, me neither. I like, I like the more older ones. The Miranda, the Stargazer, the Excelsior. Yeah, the ones that were a little more influenced by Andrew Probert. Or the ones that were actually designed by Andy Probert, <laughs> yeah, really. Yeah, I suppose, yeah. But also the ones that were more influenced by him. The uh, the Stargazer, the Ambassador. The Ambassador class never grabbed me on its own. It just... The Ambassador class, more than any other ship, is really an explicit example of, okay, we need something that's halfway between this and this. Let's, we need something that's like sort of the Galaxy class, but not quite completely the Galaxy class. It doesn't look like anything that would have been that way for any reason other than trying to make it look kind of like the Galaxy class. I suppose, but it always seems kind of fresh to me. And that may also be because it didn't show up over and over again like the Excelsiors and Mirandas. I guess that's true. Nah, that design never struck me, though. <sighs> Welcome, listeners, to Hardcore Starship Design Podcast. <laughs> We haven't even gotten to 2009 Star Trek and their singleness-held ship. Whoo, buddy. At least all these ships at first contact had two nacelles. Yeah, we're going to be purists about that one, huh? Let's save the talk about nacelle numbers and warp field mechanics for when it's really, really relevant. In as much as it becomes relevant. <laughs> I was going to say, what is that really, really relevant? <laughs> We'll, we'll just have to see. Although, even with this entire fleet of new ships, there's there's a bunch of Akira class, there's a bunch of Steamrunner class, there's a bunch of Jaeger class, there's like all these different kind of, there's like two or three more that I'm forgetting. Saber. Saber class, yes. There's, there's, there's like a whole fleet of all these brand new various different kinds of ships. Still, the Enterprise is the only Sovereign class that shows up. Oh, yes. Because the movie works a little bit in its first act at making sure you know this is the Enterprise. You see it on screen and the motion picture main title march comes in, slash Next Generation theme, to just underline this is the Enterprise, this is our ship now. You know, they construct the first act of the movie so that the Enterprise is left alone in space 
before joining the battle so that they can have lots of lingering shots of it all alone featured on the big screen. With all the things we've said about the design of this ship, maybe alone against a starfield isn't the best way to try to showcase it? I'm not that big a fan of the Sovereign design anyway. It always felt a little too... Voyager. <laughs> it felt a little too <clears throat> elongated to yes. me. Yes, I was, I was never... We're still on hardcore starship design. Yep. I was never a big fan of these ships that just sort of flow into each other. That don't have like a distinct saucer section and star drive section. They just sort of flow into each other with the graceful lines of a humpback whale. I was never a fan of that. Give, give me a distinct saucer section, a distinct neck, and a distinct star drive section. With distinct nacelles sticking out of the ladder. I don't want like one part molded into the rest or molded into another part. Give me distinction. And give me Genesis. Give me the designs that would be astonishingly awkward in an atmosphere, but work in space because it's space. Okay? Ships built in space, used in space, flown in space, don't have to have the graceful curving lines of a humpback whale to guide the airflow across them smoothly. They don't need that. They're gonna have like a big circle thing, and then a small neck section, and then a big star drive section and nacelles sort of sticking awkwardly out of it and as long as they have their structural integrity fields that's fine it's not like there's going to be wind shear when i was little i had the micro machines toy of the enterprise e which included saucer separation like there was a little peg in the saucer that was supposed to stick into the star drive section and stay there. Although after I took it off, like the third time, it kind of wore down enough that it never quite held on again. But that's Micro Machines for you. But with the way the Enterprise E is designed with those graceful sloping curves, you basically have to determine an arbitrary point of division. Yeah. Which looks, in a way, even more awkward than the Enterprise D separated. But anyway, uh, let's maybe move off of our uh, hardcore Starship Design podcast. What a way to get started here on our first contact episode. Yes. This is one of the more popular of the Star Trek movies, and we've spent the first 20-something minutes of our show talking about Starship Design. This is one of the more popular of the movies? I'm given to understand, yeah. Okay. That's something that I want to delve into a little bit once we go through some of the story elements, but it's made in a way that is kind of a little more populist than some of the other movies. If by populist you mean it's basically a standard shocky horror movie where... All our heroes keep running up to higher floors of the house rather than getting the hell out. Well, first, let's get into a few parts of the story. The story? Wait a minute, I thought we were just here to talk about the starship designs. We can talk more about starship design later if you want. And the set design. And the uniforms. Now you want to talk about the story? Wow. 
So, obviously, this movie is about the Borg in an important way. And that's one of the kind of populist elements that I was referring to, because were you to ask, like, the general public what they know about the next generation, they're going to know the Borg. Most commonly, probably, yeah. The Borg have been used in a few different ways throughout the course of Next Generation, and it's used in a somewhat different way in this movie. I mean, the way they were introduced in Next Gen was just as this monolithic, implacable force of conformity interested in technology more than anything else, and just coldly examining things. Later on, they started assimilating people, and so their priorities kind of shifted a little, the way they were used kind of shifted a little. In Best of Both Worlds, when they assimilated Captain Picard, it integrated a little more body horror in terms of what he was going through. Later on in Descent, this group of Borg was shown to be vulnerable to a charismatic leader in sort of a fascist way. And now, in First Contact, they again have sort of a charismatic leader, and they're still this creeping monolithic force, except for the charismatic leader. So that monolith is kind of chipped a little. Except now they fall much more into what you were referencing, the kind of haunted house aesthetic. Well, the Borg in Descent were Borg that had been separated from the Collective. That's why they needed a leader. This movie supposedly shows Borg that are still part of the Collective. And yet they have this leader. It's sort of... It doesn't really work. Because you have the Borg that are supposed to be this ultimate Collective Consciousness. They're literally called drones. Each one is just a tiny little cog in a much greater whole. But that comes up against the Star Trek film predisposition of every movie has to have one big bad guy to try to be the new con. And so even though they wanted to use the Borg in First Contact, because the Borg were probably the most recognizable TNG villain, they still needed to have one singular bad guy. And so they had to have, like, the Borg leader. And it never really made sense. And Data in the movie says it doesn't make sense. When the Borg Queen introduces herself and says, I'm the one of the many, or whatever the fuck she says, even Data says, that makes no sense. That's an inherent contradiction. And then the Borg Queen just kind of goes, Yeah, but here I am. And they never, they never really explain how it's not a contradiction. Because it is a contradiction. It really does change some of the symbolism of the Borg to have a singular leader, right? Because in previous versions of the Borg, they were more like this overwhelming, faceless force. Yes. Although I suppose you could say that the whole Locutus thing gives a little bit of precedent for having, like, one among many. Well, the entire idea of Locutus was that they would have one significant person that they took from the society they're going to assimilate and use them as a spokesperson to speak to the society they're going to assimilate. 
If they already have a queen, why not just let the queen do it? She has even fewer facial disfigurements than Locutus. Let her be the spokesperson. Right, but she isn't literally the representation of someone who is trusted by the crew of our intrepid enterprise. Or the intrepid crew of our trusted enterprise, or something. Or the trusting crew of our intrepid class, USS Voyager. Very trusting at times. <laughs> but this isn't a Voyager podcast. I don't think you would agree to do a Voyager podcast. I don't know, they seem to be coming up because of their extensive use of the Borg later on. But that is all later on. So the whole idea of the Queen really doesn't... It doesn't make a whole lot of sense and it doesn't really work for me. And it really is obviously there only because... Star Trek movies have to have a big bad who the crew is fighting against. And everyone who's made a Star Trek movie has felt that way almost every movie they've made since Rathacon. Basically. And that's something that we're going to track through these next-gen movies in particular because... I don't remember if I made this argument before, but the original series lends itself much better to that formula than Next Gen does, just looking at the styles of the different TV shows. Well, that sort of ties into something we talked about in our last podcast, about how the original series was about this group of people going out into the galaxy and having adventures and encountering bad guys, whereas Next Generation to an extent, is more about the overarching story. It's about the growth of humanity. It's about the expansion of the Federation. Encountering a singular big bad guy doesn't fit into that story. Encountering a singular big bad guy who fights against Kirk and his loyal crew, that's a story that works. A singular big bad guy who fights against Captain Picard doesn't work as well, because that's not what Next Generation was ever about. Yeah, in terms of the kind of story you would find on Next Gen, as opposed to the kind of story you would generally find on the original series, and this is kind of stereotyping to a degree, it's kind of averaging out the rough edges, but Next Gen as a show could be a lot more cerebral, and a lot more... Ponderous, and I don't use that word in a negative sense. But it's a show that would ponder things. You know, now and then it would have a lot of slower, talky episodes that would kind of mull around different issues. And that sort of episode just is not going to be the basis for a movie. You know, they're not going to make the drumhead the movie, as much as I might love it. Yeah, that would be pretty awesome. The original series, the conflict in an original series episode was very often a sort of variation on a basic man versus man conflict. Next Generation was a lot more about man against nature, man against society, like the drumhead, man against himself... It was much more about these other types of conflicts. It was a lot less of bad guy shows up and Picard has to defeat him. But in these last three, not so much Insurrection, although to a certain extent they try to do it in this Insurrection, but with the Borg Queen in this movie and with Shitzon and Nemeshit, 
they really try to turn Next Generation into bad guy shows up and Picard has to defeat him. And it never really works. There are large differences, though. I mean, it doesn't really work for what Next Gen was, but this movie, I think, is a very interesting case. Because, ultimately, there is a lot of genre drift. And there is a lot of characterization drift. And there's a lot of shifting in terms of emphasis, in terms of the things the story is interested in exploring. But the story of this movie, I think, does feel compelled to address those issues. And that's why we have the Zephram Cochran subplot. It feels compelled to have something a little more optimistic. It feels compelled to have something a little more humanist. Uh, to use a term that a Zetber would be quite angry at me for using. And, in addition to that, it does all of these things to move Next Gen into an action film series, which we'll see in the next couple episodes. That's what it is now. But this is the movie where it actually works. This is a movie where I can recognize, and I have a lot of those criticisms of it. I'm a little more negative on it than many people I've talked about it with online. It's it's generally considered, like, great. I wouldn't call it great. It, it is, among a lot of fans, and among a lot of casual fans, and among a lot of non-fans, it's generally considered one of the best Star Trek movies. That's been my impression. It's not as good as 6, it's not as good as 4, it's not as good as 2... I like three better, though I guess I could see the argument. Oh, I, I love three. And I know you love Generations. I do like Generations, but I acknowledge I like Generations more than most everyone else, and probably more than it deserves. So I won't. I don't even try to argue that one anymore. But I mean, just off the top of my head, there's three or four. And that's only counting the original movies. I mean, Darkness and the 09 movie are both way better than this. That might be a controversial position, but we will get to those movies in due time. So, I mean, I'm not saying First Contact's a bad movie. I don't dislike it at all. I, it's, it's good. It's very good. I enjoy it. It's well put together. It's well done. It has these some drawbacks. But overall, most of the Star Trek movies are pretty good. So to say that, you know, this is only the fifth or sixth best one is not really an insult. So, even as I am significantly colder on it than a lot of people are, I really feel deeply a lot of those criticisms about moving away from a lot of what Next Gen was. Because I love Next Gen as a show, as, like, an element of my childhood. It's wrapped up in a whole lot of things. But just watching this movie in isolation, it works. It moves. It's compelling. And so, let's get a little more into the genre drift that I was talking about. Let's get a little more into the Borg, because it really is a shift, and it really is a change, and it's doing a lot more stereotypical things. That's probably the part of the movie that works the least for me, is all the horror movie elements. Because I'm just not a fan of horror movies, so when they suddenly show up in a Next Generation film, it leaves me kind of cold. Yeah, it's it's like they're trying to do several different kinds of horror movie at the same time. Well, they do a lot of standard horror movie tropes. Like, they have the Borg, like, crawling around 
in the shadows and the Jeffrey's tubes and you can't really see them and every time you turn around the corner they're not actually there but you see the shadows go by you can hear them like skittering and then, and then they do the bit where like the engineering door opens only about a foot and a half off the ground and Data gets pulled under the door while he's like grabbing onto the carpet trying to stop himself from being dragged away by these unseen foes yeah and the Borg are at once zombies and vampires I mean, now they have the two nanotubes that inject assimilation nanobots into your neck. Yeah, there's really no reason why there has to be two of those tubes set just that far apart from each other. One tube can inject the nanites. Yeah, while at the same time they act basically like slow zombies. And have a lot of that visual sense as well. Now they're on a movie budget, Michael Westmore can do a lot more involved Borg makeup. And so there's a lot of flesh that's rotting, and there are a lot of implants more integrated into the bodies of people who've been assimilated than there were before. Yeah. Which is something else that on a technical level is great. I mean, some of the body horror elements are really done well. Like the person with the severed arm getting the Borg arm installed, or the person with the Borgified eye. Again, it sort of introduces inconsistencies, though. Because anybody assimilated the way that these people in First Contact are assimilated is not going to be, like, unassimilated the way Picard was at the end of Best of Both Worlds 2. Not completely the way he was, but again, getting ahead of the timeline, that's something that Voyager does to an extent. I mean, you're talking about cutting off body parts, you're talking about like evacuating the body cavity and replacing it with processors and shit. I mean, Picard goes like digging inside this one guy. He doesn't have a liver in there, he doesn't have lungs in there, it's just all Borg parts. You don't, like, take that guy into sickbay for 20 minutes, and then, oh, now you're human again. Yeah, that would be a tough haul. But yeah, the scene with Ensign Lynch has some more of that body horror stuff as he digs around in him. Which, by the way, if someone had had that mentality about Picard once upon a time, it would be a different show. Yeah. You know, again, with the, um horror movie tropes, there's a section of this movie where Lily is being ushered through the Borg corridor. It's another really big corridor set, and she's basically just shrieking the whole time. Yeah, that that's sort of... that turned me off, where Lily is supposed to be this, like, central character, and she's part of Zephram Cochran's first warp flight, and she's survived the post-atomic horror... At this camp somewhere in Montana. And in this scene she's basically reduced to the standard horror movie shrieking girl. I didn't like that at all. Which is understandable enough given how horrifying the Borg are. And how horrifying they're made to be in this movie. But it still is a little strange as you say. This movie I didn't think was very kind to Lily at all. I mean, she basically gets completely sidelined from this warp fight that she's supposedly been working on for years. She has nothing to do with it anymore. It's all fire important that Cochran be part of the warp fight. They go chase him down for miles and miles and stun him with a phaser to get him to show up and be as part of this warp fight. But apparently Lily doesn't matter. Yeah, apparently they don't know the name of his co-pilot. 
So as much as Lily was supposed to be an important character and was supposed to be portrayed as being vital to the warp fight, the movie really doesn't do that. Also in terms of the shifting genres, we have some scenes that feel like they're from like an army movie or a war picture or something, where suddenly Picard is leading this mission briefing and it's all serious, stoic, stern, military strategy stuff. Well, they're about to go fight the Borg. That makes a certain amount of sense. In a way, but again, that's not what Next Gen is. I suppose. Maybe I'm just used to those sorts of scenes because after watching the last four seasons of DS9. But that scene didn't strike me as out of the ordinary because it is sort of a standard Next Generation scene. Before Next Generation did anything, they all got together in the observation lounge and talked it over. So that's just the same scene, except now they're not getting ready for first contact with Proto-Vulcans. Now they're getting ready to try to take their ship back from the Borg. That is not nearly as close to one of the conference scenes from the TV show as the one in the observation lounge at the beginning of the movie when Picard is giving them their mission to patrol the neutral zone. Yeah. You know, that scene is straight out of the show. Yeah. Well, I think this later one is very similar. It's just they're getting ready for a very different mission. Also, right after that, Data's emotional journey, which is like one of the core elements of the TV show and one of the core elements of the previous movie, is completely sidestepped. Well, not really. It's sort of an important part of the movie all along. It's how the Borg Queen tries to manipulate him. Yeah, but it really struck me how the little scene where Picard tells him to shut off his emotion ship before confronting the Borg is really emblematic of the way that we don't have time to talk about character or story right now. We've got to get to shooting the creepy people. Well, if you want to take that scene as emblematic of the descent of the Next Generation films from Next Generation-style storylines to shoot up action kicksplode storylines. Even when they do revisit some of the character stuff with Data and the Borg Queen later, it's not really introspective. How is it not? The whole thing is. That entire storyline is about Data trying to deal with these emotions that he's only had for two years. And he's, you know, he can't deal with them in a crisis situation. He has to shut off the chip in order to deal with the crisis. And then when the Borg reactivated against his will, he has to try to deal with this crisis situation with the distraction of these emotions that he's only had for two years. How are you with dealing with your emotions when you'd had them for two years? I remember when you had had emotions for two years. <laughs> you weren't very much fun to deal with at that point. And he certainly wouldn't have handled a Borg invasion very well, now would you? I'll have to concede that point, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> but this whole thing is about Data's emotions and Data's desire to become more human. And how the Borg play off that and manipulate that to try to suborn Data. And does he succumb to that, or does he have the emotional maturity to not succumb to that? Yeah, except that's expressed in kind of a more superficial temptations of the flesh. That's part of it. Fashion. That's part of it. Don't young, immature people often fall to temptations of the flesh? 
Isn't there an entire political party where a large part of their platform is just screeching in terror about young, immature people falling to temptations of the flesh? So you're saying Data in this movie is a goddamn millennial? <laughs> I used Snapchat for 0 0.68 seconds. <laughs> Data in this movie is like that gerbil. Where they set up a thing where if you hit a particular pad, then you get a drug that makes you feel good. And so the gerbil gives up eating so it can just keep hitting the pad. <laughs> no, that's pretty much exactly what Garrick did in The Wire. Yeah, very similar. <laughs> so, so this is Data and the thing, you know. Data, you can save your ship and save your crewmates and defeat the Borg. Or you could feel this wonderful skin. Don't you like your skin? Yeah, or Don't I... you like it when I rub your skin? Don't you like it when I blow on your skin? Aw, oh, skin! So which is it, Data? Yes, here in this movie we have another entry into the annals of spectacularly unsexy sex scenes in Star Trek movies. We had the finger sex or finger foreplay, depending on where you land in that argument... And now we have Data and the Borg Queen macking out in front of the entire collective? Well, the finger sex was somehow pedophilic in both directions at the same time. Yes. This is at least pedophilic in neither direction. Unless you count Data's emotional age of two. <laughs> oh no! Maybe, okay, so maybe my point isn't that good. Never mind. <laughs> also, of all of the billions and billions of drones across the galaxy, the only being the Borg are actually able to give pink skin to is Data, who already has white skin. Well, that's the one time they're trying. <laughs> Every other being that gets assimilated, their pink skin is drained down to white, or their brown skin is drained down to white, Data, who already has white skin, him they're able to give pink skin to. And how come they give Data pink skin? And not tan skin, or brown skin, or blue skin, or red skin, or... Because of the myopia of the creators? <laughs> how Be come because the entire point of giving Data actual flesh was so that there was like a couple of square inches on Brent Spiner's body that they didn't have to paint? Well, okay, I guess there's a practical consideration there but inside the story it, it, it does beg the question when Data says I want to become more human does he really mean more like Picard or more like Geordi? Well, why is this skin more like Riker? <laughs> and the skin they give him on his arm is not smooth as an android's bottom I'm given to understand. <laughs> I do kind of appreciate the weird sensuality of the Borg Queen though. It seems, out of all of the things that the movie does, that seems like an interesting direction to go. She's kind of the ultimate femme fatale. I mean, if there has to be a Borg Queen at all. And, I mean, you can imagine a version of this movie where there isn't. In some ways, it might be a better movie. It would have to change some storylines around a bit, but... If they had to have one person to kind of speak for the Borg, they could have just assimilated Data, I guess. Or would that be a little too transparent? 
that we, we have to slam the reset button on this by the end of the movie. That would be an interesting way to go, where, like, the Borg nanites try to take over Data, and Data has some sort of, like, antivirus or firewall or something that's fighting the Borg reprogramming, but that would be hard to dramatize. Yeah, that would probably be better in a novel. Data's internal anti-corruption algorithms are, like, fighting the Borg nanites reprogramming of his positronic net. And, and and finally, at some point in the story, he breaks through and regains control of his body. That would be really hard to dramatize in a movie. And our heroes experience it metaphorically on the holodeck. Oh. This is a more next-gen movie we're talking about now. <laughs> Although they do show how the holodeck has evolved since Generations. In Generations, when they were on the sailboat and they all left the holodeck, they were still in their sailor costumes because they had to put them on before they went in the holodeck. Now, Picard and Lily have holodeck clothes. Yeah, they would have had to, like, create the clothes and then change into them or something. Well, that's... I guess they could have done that, but the implication is that the holodeck is able to give them clothes now. I suppose. Well, if we're talking about clothes... That briefing scene you were talking about is the first time where Picard starts gradually stripping his uniform throughout the film. Yeah, we have the new First Contact uniforms in this movie, and over the course of the movie, we see each layer of it, at least the captain's version, as Picard gets stripped down layer by layer as the plot proceeds, and as he has to do more, he has to go through more in order to keep fighting the Borg. He's kind of stripped bare, metaphorically and symbolically, by the end of the movie. Yeah, that never really made much sense to me, unless it's supposed to be like a sign of his deteriorating mental state. That everyone else is still in their uniform, but he's just sort of not maintaining that anymore because of his deteriorating mental state. Also, apparently the Borg make it frickin' hot on that ship, and he's got, like, five layers of wool. Yeah, he's got at least four layers that I remember between the, the jacket and then the vest under it, and then the colored shirt, and then the gray tank top, where, you know, by the end of the movie, he strips all the way down to the tank top, and he walks into the main engineering set, and he invites the entire collective to the gun show. And finally... I know at least one listener to this podcast will appreciate me bringing this back up again, but yes, we have an action film series where your action star is Patrick Stewart. Well, like I said in the, in the last podcast, I think, Patrick Stewart wanted more action scenes. He wanted to be the punch-out-the-bad-guy captain like Kirk was in the movies. Oh yeah, he wanted, during the course of the TV show, he wanted more action and more romance. And in the movies, he gets it. Sort of. God, the Picard romances in the movies are so awkward and usually not actually called romances. Like with Lily in this movie. Well, that's not even a romance. They don't even have any... They don't have any romantic scenes. That's what I'm saying. It's really awkward and really practically not even a romance. Although... How much do you want to read into the fact that they cast Alfrey Woodard and didn't have her in a romantic plot with Picard? As much as I appreciate a movie not having a love story, how much do you want to read into Alfrey Woodard not having that love story with 
Patrick Stewart, as opposed to the next movie where he does have an explicitly romantic plot with a white woman. I don't know if that's that much of a consideration. They had interracial couples on Star Trek before. Oh, absolutely. I know Jordy had some white girlfriends, or at least white women he went on dates with. True. You know, Sarah and Amanda. True, but there is a sort <laughs> of knee-jerk conservatism when you're making big-budget motion pictures. Maybe. And maybe I'm being unfair, but for a long time it's been very easy to read knee-jerk conservative impulses into Rick Berman. To an extent. Although I think part of that is the historical perspective, because it's, you know, 30 years after the beginning of Next Generation. It's 20 years since this First Contact movie. And also, he was sort of... I almost don't want to call it conservative, although conservative is a label that would apply, but that has a lot of political connotations I don't even want to get into. Oh, yeah. Rick Berman played it safe a lot. Yeah, that's that's what I mean by conservative. I don't mean right-wing politically. I, I mean playing it safe, yeah. like you say. Whenever somebody tried to do something too outlandish or too progressive or too forward-thinking, Rick Berman... Did a lot to rein them in and play it safe. Yeah. Uh, fair or unfair, considering the perspective we have now in 2016 talking about this, it's easy to place a lot of the racial representation issues in Star Trek of the late 80s through the 90s through the whole Rick Berman era, 87 through 05. It's easy to place a lot of the racial representation issues. It's easy to place a lot of the complete lack of LGBTQ representation. Well, yeah, he's basically the reason why there has never been a gay character on Star Trek. At least throughout the 87 to 05 era. Yeah, it is very easy to place that on him. I mean, remember fairly early in the Next Generation production, David Gerald wanted to do an episode about AIDS, and Rick Berman wouldn't let him. Right, there are a couple of varying perspectives on that. I heard a podcast interview with Richard Arnold a year or two ago where he said that the reason they didn't do that episode wasn't because it had a gay character, it was because the script sucked. But I haven't read it, and I haven't seen the uh, fan film adaptation that they did eventually do of it, so I can't really speak to that. Well, I know David Gerald later adapted that script into a novel, and the novel was very successful. At any rate, I can't, I can't speak specifically to that, but there are varying perspectives on that one. But whatever the merits of that particular premise and whatever the merits of that particular script, the fact that they never tried again says something. Well, even when they tried again, it was always, you know, fairly tame stuff. Like, they did that one episode that was sort of about trans people, if you squint a little. The Outcast is a story that was trying to be about gay people... But because it was 1990 and they had so little consciousness of anything, it kind of accidentally became about trans people. But even then, it was so toned down from some of the original ideas they had before they actually managed to get that thing filmed. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. But anyway, there's a whole podcast about queer issues in Star Trek. But, um... You mentioned that the Borg made the environment really hot, and I'd like to ask why. Why did the Borg make it 39 degrees Celsius and 90% humidity? 
They're... What good does 91% humidity do for the Borg? They're partly made of metal. And the other part is flesh glommed onto the metal. How does 91% humidity help that? All it would do is rust the metal and rot the flesh faster. Especially at that temperature. Keeps the flesh pliant? Although they do alright in space. Yeah, they do fine in hard vacuum. I don't understand why those environmental conditions would be conducive to the Borg in any way. Temperature or humidity. You know I'm going with the production explanations over in-story things, but... uh, Yeah, it's just something to make it identifiable. Going back for just a second to the weird eroticism of the Borg Queen... Which feels odd to even say, but that's basically what they do with her, right? Well, yeah, that's basically how she plays the character. And she spends the whole movie trying to seduce Data. Yeah, she spends the whole movie trying to seduce Data, and then Picard's endgame at the end of the movie is to go into engineering and seduce her. Yeah, when he shows up after inviting the entire collective to the gun show, he then tries to seduce the Borg Queen to save Data from her seductions. Which, all of this is very strange tactics to use against the Borg. Which you can, now that the Borg are headed by someone with a singular personality. Now the Borg have a personality. Now the Borg have a personality. Now the Borg have a single being to relate to, and that being happens to be a woman. With, like, fake Borg breasts on her fake Borg body. And a large amount of cleavage besides. I mean, who's this appealing to here? (laughs) And of course, we're kind of skipping around at random here, but at the end, after Picard tries to seduce the Borg Queen to save Data from her seduction, after Data floods the engineering cathedral with the coolant, we have the horror movie scene of Picard trying to climb away from the deadly acid Oops, I mean engine coolant, and the monster in the acid, oops, I mean the Borg Queen, climbs up out of the engine coolant and grabs Picard by the ankle and tries to drag him back down into the coolant, and Picard tries to climb away and not let the monster drag him back down into the acid. That's a really standard horror movie scene as well. But after that, after the Borg Queen is knocked back into the coolant, after all of her flesh parts are dissolved... And it's just this, like, metal skull and spinal column. Of course, Picard has to pick up the remnants of the Borg Queen and snap a little piece off of her metal spinal column. Because this is a Star Trek movie and it's all about the captain versus the big bad guy. Right, because at the end of an action movie, we probably have to kill the adversary. It's not enough that the adversary gets dragged back into the swirling engine coolant and all of her biological parts are liquefied. No, there has to be a little flickering light left on her robot parts so that the big hero can snap a little piece off and make the LED go out. I guess the thing I'm really interested in here is... How much does it change the symbolism of the Borg to give them this singular leader? I mean, previously, the Borg could be read as an allegory for whatever ideology you don't like, basically. Maybe that's true for lots of adversaries in fiction. But 
you could read them as runaway collectivists or as runaway fascists or as runaway conformity, you know, kind of stamping out individuality and diversity or as consumers, because what else are they doing when they assimilate things? They are literally consuming everything they come in contact with. And as that sort of collectivist or fascist or consumerist force, it's kind of a challenge to the Federation on sort of a fundamental level. Because what we're told the Federation is, is this confederation of planets, is this diverse group of species that have banded together as a um, peacekeeping and humanitarian armada, as some <laughs> might say. But as this alliance of different species, different sorts of people with different viewpoints, different positionalities, and so this is challenged by the thing that has no diversity, no individuality, no internal strife or competition of any kind. And so that's kind of a challenge to the utopia that we're told the Federation is. It's kind of a lighter challenge than some of the more explicit ones we get in DS9, and some of the things that Voyager could have done more of if it was a different show, but it's still there, nonetheless. And those things are reflected in different ways, depending on how you want to interpret all the Borg episodes in The Next Generation. Here, they're sort of collapsed into the faceless minions serving as the army of this one villain. So, how much of that symbolism do you think survives? I'm really not the person to ask about symbolism. Yeah, that was partially a rhetorical question, I guess. <laughs> like, does, does any of it survive? I mean, is it just collapsed into, now we're doing a monster movie, now we're doing a haunted house movie, now we're doing an action shoot 'em up movie? At different points, depending on the needs of any particular scene. To an extent... That's true. The Next Generation episodes were much more about higher ideas than these Next Generation movies are. When the Next Generation is introduced to the Borg, they are this implacable foe that you cannot hope to combat. They brush off your attacks. They're the irresistible force and the immovable object. Yes. They're this implacable foe that you have literally no chance against unless you ask a god to remove you from the battlefield. And then later, they're defeated by just quirk happenstance. Because they happen to get an inside information about a relatively benign system that they can turn to their advantage. So, they're introduced as this implacable foe that cannot be defeated, and eventually they're defeated by the Federation's ingenuity. Which the Borg, as mindless drones and a collective hive mind, don't have that kind of ingenuity. And so that's why the Federation is able to win in Best of Both Worlds. In First Contact, most of those ideas aren't really there. I mean, the Borg are still referred to as this implacable foe, but that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is not, here's this implacable foe, how do you deal with them? The point of the story is, so let's have a fight scene. Let's have a horror movie scene. Let's have an excuse to time travel. 
you know, the focus has shifted from the bigger ideas to the action scenes. The one element of that symbolism that I think remains in this movie is the bit about the Borg as consumers, in the literal sense of the word, as users and assimilators, because that sense of them is contrasted a couple of times when we're reminded about the economics of the Star Trek future, and the fact that that utopian Star Trek future is contrasted with the less utopian 2063 Earth. And so the crew of the Enterprise and the Borg both have incredibly advanced technology in the eyes of Lily and Zephram Cochran and anyone else from 2063, but their use of it is very different, and their use of it is contrasted in this movie. Humanity uses technology to enhance their lives and reach something of that utopian vision that Star Trek is supposedly built on, which we've said before was kind of grafted into it, but it's a very good thing to graft into. But those are very different uses of technology, and those are very different uses of the concept of perfectibility. You know, the Borg claim to be perfection. They claim to put order to the disordered and whatever else the Borg Queen tries to explain to Data, which doesn't make very much sense, but there it is. While Picard expresses to Lily that they believe in the perfectibility of humankind, that they believe in the idea of the wholesale advancement in not only a technological sense, but a moral sense. Of the human species. Can we talk about the best use of Data's emotion ship in this movie? It is right after it gets reactivated, and so Data tries to deal with his panic by smack talking the Borg. Because <laughs> that is one of the better seeds, I think, where Data uses his new emotional awareness and he tries to fight the overwhelming fear he's feeling in this moment. By, like, snarking at the Borg Queen. Where she says, you know, we, we assimilate other species and bring us closer to perfection. And Data's like, you know, well, believing yourself to be perfect is often the sign of a delusional mind. And he, like, draws it out. Like, just really laying it on thick. And they have this whole conversation where she keeps trying to talk up the Borg and... He keeps, like, mocking her and, and saying nasty things back to her. It's so great. It really is the best, one of the, my favorite scenes in the movie. One of the most well-done scenes in the movie, I thought. It's definitely a highlight of that whole Data storyline. Yeah. Like, that's how you show... In a lot of these TNG movies, they sort of struggle with how to deal with Data now that he has emotions. And that's really the best they do. <laughs> I mean, in Generations, they have the scenes where he's, like, literally just gotten emotions. So he's, like, literally a toddler, practically. And so he goes through all these issues where he relives every joke he's ever heard in his life now that he can actually laugh at them. And, and he's overwhelmed by emotions because he's had them for three days and he doesn't know how to deal with them. But now he's got a little bit of experience. He's still a little emotionally immature, but he has more experience than he did in Generations. He has more than like three days experience with them. He has a couple of years under his belt. And that is probably, of the four Next Generation movies, that is the scene where they do the best job of showing data plus emotions. 
Because in Insurrection, they sort of get rid of the emotion ship. There's like one line like, well, he didn't take it with him. And so he goes through the whole movie without the emotion ship. And it's like back during the series data again. And I think they do something similar in Nemesis. I don't remember exactly because I've seen Nemesis exactly once. Yeah, we'll get there. But out of all the Next Generation movies where they decide to give Data the emotion ship and then they really have no idea what the hell to do with him, that one scene is where they really do show what they could have done with him rather than just reverting him back to what he was in the series. That's what they could have done of Data with emotions. Meanwhile, Picard is feeling some feelings as well. I mean, you could very easily read Picard in this movie as a PTSD sufferer who's forced to re-traumatize himself over and over. Yeah, Starfleet is sort of depicted at the beginning of the movie as sort of out of line and not thinking clearly and not acting correctly. When they tell Picard, we don't want you in this battle because of your history with the Borg, you go do something else and let us handle the battle. But then once Picard has to come back into the battle, and once he has to follow him back in time, and once the Borg start assimilating his ship, you start to see a lot of signs that maybe Starfleet knew what they were doing. Because Picard is not handling this well. He's telling his people to like fight the Borg hand to hand, when all the Borg have to do is hold their hand near a person for two seconds and they assimilate them. <laughs> yeah, he really, he really is not living up to those utopian ideals. He, he is showing all of the reasons why Starfleet didn't want him in the battle against the Borg. It's not like they thought he was going to switch sides or something, but they thought maybe he couldn't handle fighting the Borg. And in, like, the second half of this movie, he clearly shows he can't handle fighting the Borg. He tries his best, but it just gets... I mean, you can see... He gradually, over the course of the movie, starts stripping off parts of his uniform because he doesn't care about the uniform. He's got to fight the Borg. He sends his people to fight the zombies hand-to-hand. Because that uniform is what symbolizes his ties to that great advanced humanity, that evolved sensibility that Lily refers to, him completely lacking as the movie goes on. He sheds that part of himself and becomes something more primal. You're just... You're doing this on purpose, aren't you? What, analyzing the movie? Everything's gotta be symbolism with you. It's a work of fiction. Y- yeah, it is. I don't believe in symbolism. You must see fiction a lot differently than I do. Much like Kirk doesn't believe in the no-win scenario, I don't believe in symbolism. You know how you can show that Picard is losing touch with his evolved sensibility? Rather than having him take off parts of his uniform? How about have him enact a vicious physical attack against a Borg drone who used to be one of his own crewmen? That'll show you how he's losing touch with his evolved humanity. That symbolizes it as well. How about showing him arguing with Worf and calling Worf names and telling his security personnel that are completely overwhelmed and are being assimilated, fight the zombies hand to hand. That's a good idea. How about showing him doing that to show that he's losing touch with the higher humanity that he likes to espouse in the series? You could do, you could show this in ways other than, oh, he took off another layer of shirt. It's expressed in many different ways at the same time. That's just a well-constructed film. You know how you can show something in a way other than, 
some obscure bit of symbolism, actually show it. You know the old saying, show, don't tell? How about show, don't symbolize? Symbolism is a method for showing something. This is fiction. Everything operates in terms of symbolism. Symbolism is a method for showing something. Symbolism is a method for really obscurely hinting at something. I don't think it's that obscure. Oh, really? Picard took off his shirt? That's a sign that he's losing touch with his evolved humanity? It expresses that, yeah, in addition to all the other things that express it. You don't think that's obscure? You think that's a pretty clear, explicit message? Whenever someone takes off their shirt, that means they're losing touch with their evolved humanity? No, when this happens to Picard in this movie, in addition to everything else that happens in the movie, it's all unified. The thing that's happening to the character is expressed in dialogue, it's expressed in action, and it's expressed in costuming. Yeah. But there is even more to this movie. There's an entire B-plot that we haven't talked about yet, and we are going to get there when we come back after this brief break. consideration paid for by the following what's up everybody this is kevin kelly make sure you check out every episode of the kevin kelly show right here on the place to be nation place to be nation.com the kevin kelly show every episode is a winner at least we hope Place Venetian's Justin Rosero here. In addition to the Kevin Kelly Show, we have a ton of great podcasts available to you on iTunes at placevenation.com. You can check out Scott Criscolo and me on the Mothership, the Place to Be podcast, with our famous Vintage Vault pay-per-view reviews. PTBN also covers current day wrestling with main event, Mission Indie Possible, and our monthly pay-per-view reaction shows with immediate feedback on WWE, NXT, and Ring of Honor Super Shows. And relive wrestling's past with our monthly pay-per-view rewind series, led by Ben Morse, and the Dangerous Alliance Wrestling Podcast as we dive into various subjects in the form of exercises and games. we got sports covered, too, with the Sports Evolution Mega Show with Scott, Dr. G, Cowboy, and Cowboy Sr., the Kings of Sport, led by Live Audio Wrestling's godfather, Nate Milton, as well as the NBA Team Podcast and the TJ McLoon Show. PTBN tackles pop culture and irreverence with Richard and the Mailman, the Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular. And if you like a hybrid of all of this in list form, check out Jordan Duncan's Rank and File. All of these shows are available on PlaceTobeNation.com, where we cover pro wrestling, sports, movies, comics, plus tournaments, and more. We want to thank our friends at Bonehead's Wing Bar in West Warwick, Rhode Island, and Fall River, Massachusetts, and Scott Keats' Blog of Doom. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr as well. PlaceTobeNation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. 
This is Parv, and I'm here to tell you to listen and subscribe to the Pro Wrestling Only Place to Be Nation podcast network. That's the PWO PTBN podcast network, where you'll find a ton of in-depth shows done by hardcore fans. We've got Chris Zellner's one-two punch of Exile on Bad Street, and with David Bickenspan, a smash hit between the sheets. We've got Wrestling Culture with Dylan Hales and Dave Musgrave. Goodwill Wrestling and the Reaction Shows with Good Old Will from Texas. We got This Week in Wrestling with my man Pete and Johnny Sorrow. Stephen Graham and Tim Livingston's Pro Wrestling Super Show. Tag Teams Back Again with Kelly and Marty Sleaze. And a ton of other great shows too. And of course there's Titans of Wrestling and Where the Big Boys Play with yours truly and some dude from down south called Chad. PWO, PTBN, Podcast Network. Nobody needs me. We can't do this without you. And welcome back to the Glenn Butler Podcast, our spectacular, as we continue our discussion of Star Trek First Contact. Now let's talk a little more about the actual titular First Contact story. The story of the Earth of 2063 and Zephram Cochran. Now, I think it's interesting that they chose a near-future time frame to travel back to while doing a time travel movie, because it would be maybe kind of a more typical thing to do to just do current day. I know at various points during the drafting process of the script they were noodling around with the U.S. Civil War or Renaissance Europe. They're going to have the Borg assimilate the Civil War? Maybe. And what, have like the Union troops under U.S. Grant fighting drones? I mean, it would be an arresting visual, but... Well, maybe that's ultimately why they decided not to go with that. And ultimately to go with the Zephram Cochran story, something that's a little more fundamental to the Star Trek universe specifically. You know, it's one of those linking pieces between the current day and the future Star Trek utopia. I think it makes more sense in story. You go back to an important point in their history, not an important point in our history. Plus Voyager just on the current day, like, the year before? I thought it was that same year. It, it might have been. might just have been the previous TV season. I don't remember exactly how the timeline matches up there, but it was very recent. And so we have a version of humanity that's closer to us in time frame, but which has also gone through extensive nuclear war, or the equivalent. What do you mean the equivalent? Well, I don't know, some equivalent that just happens not to involve nuclear weapons. Why would they go through something that happens not to involve nuclear weapons? Because that's less of a concern now, and it was less of a concern in 1996 than it was in 1987, when they were talking about the post-atomic horror. Well, that's what I'm saying. What did they go through that didn't involve nuclear weapons, but was immediately followed by something called the post-atomic horror? Do they refer to it as the post-atomic horror in this movie? Or is it just, you know, a general... Did they, did they even call it World War Three? They definitely called it World War Three. Okay. I don't remember if they used post-atomic horror... They do refer to World War III, but not the post-atomic horror. Again, because by 1996, the nuclear holocaust was less of a going concern. Mm-hmm. Still not entirely sure what point you're making. 
the point I'm making is that it's a humanity in 2063 that's closer to us in terms of time frame, but still has distinct and relevant differences from any society that we have now, or did in 1996. And why is it really important for there to have not been a nuclear war for that to have happened? I don't remember saying it was. Well, you're the one that wanted this entire tangent about, well, it wasn't a nuclear war. No, I so said they've been through something. It might not have been a nuclear war, but they were through a World War III, whatever form it took. Why does it have to have not been a nuclear war? Why couldn't it be the nuclear war? It may or may not have been. That's all I fucking said. Why are we going down this entire tangent? So, at any rate... It's an environment of distrust. It's an environment of desperation. It's a sensitive time, as the beginning often is, which turns out to be the beginning of the Star Trek future utopia. Using the whole Zephram Cochran story is also, of course, a way to tie it a little more into the Star Trek mythology and a way to make this a lot more of a Star Trek movie than it would be if it was just the Borg haunted house monster movie. I suppose, yeah. Tying in a little bit of future history does sort of ground it more in the franchise, I suppose. At least it gives it more of a Star Trek-style story. Exactly. Going back in time to see the first warp flight, that is a very Star Trek story, more so than, you know, the horror drones that drag you under the door. Right, there's that hopefulness of the beginning of a new era, even if that era has to be birthed by people like Zephram Cochran, which gets into the movie's relationship with all of the great man of history ideas. Their depiction of Zephram Cochran does introduce a lot of inconsistencies. How's that? Because we've seen Zephram Cochran before. We saw him in the original series, and he wasn't... A giant like James Cromwell. And he wasn't really old in 2063 like James Cromwell because the original Zephram Cochran lived until, was it 2117? When he disappeared during a space flight? I mean, it was sometime in the 2110s. So it's at least 50 years after the 2063 time frame of First Contact. I think the Zephram Cochran, as presented in the original series, fell into line a little more with the sort of scientist hero you find in a lot of the written sci-fi of the time, of the 50s and 60s. That sort of Heinlein Asimov Clark idea of a story built around kind of a scientific anyman. I don't know about scientific anyman, but yeah, definitely the sort of hero of science as depicted in a lot of the popular sci-fi at the time, yeah. Whereas in this movie, James Cromwell is playing someone who spends about 85% of the movie desperately trying not to be the great man of history. Well, there is a lot of iconoclasm in the characterization of Cochrane in this movie. Yeah. Which I don't necessarily object to. I mean, I know some people do, but I think it can work. But really the bigger inconsistency to me, because I'm a nerd, the bigger inconsistency to me is that Zephram Cochran is still making space flights 50 years after this time. And somebody the age of James Cromwell, who just lived through a nuclear war, 
is probably not going to be in the greatest of health 50 years older. Get some really good health care from the Vulcans. I don't know. <laughs> the entire thing with Cochrane... On the one hand, it's interesting, and it does introduce some of the very few moments of levity in the film. On the other hand, a lot of it... Again, I don't think... I was going to say, I don't think they handle it very well, but in this point, the they I'm talking about isn't the writers. Now the they I'm talking about is the Enterprise crew. Because Jordy makes a point at one point when Cochran's trying to run away from his future fame, and Jordy's like, we can't do this without you. And my immediate thought is, why not? You do practically the entire thing without him. Literally, all he does is show up and sit in the cockpit. Yeah, well, he has to be the one sitting in the cockpit, and then he has to be the one shaking the Vulcan's hand, because that's in the history books. Yeah, but he's doing this whole thing as like a puppet on the end of Riker and Jordy's and Troy's strings. After they spend a considerable part of the movie convincing him to. I mean, how is this the great man of history? I mean, obviously he's not, and that's kind of the point, but they're sort of, like, propping him up to be the great man of history, and that really... They're trying to prop him up to be the great man of history, but if you look at it with the notion that history does not have great men in it, then I think that makes a little more sense. You know, he's the name who's in the history books, and so he has to do all of these things, but the personality that's sort of ascribed to him by history and by these people from a couple centuries later who have been raised on all this history is completely separate from the material reality of the man's life. It just seems really weird that the whole time they're holding him up as this is Zephram Cochran who invented the warp ship and made first contact with the Vulcans. But... They're not there to try to repair the damage the Borg did and help him return to his proper place as Zephram Cochran. They literally take over the entire project, rebuild the ship themselves, and just prop him up in the cockpit and say, okay, hit the start button. Well, they have to lend special assistance after the Borg blow up the whole place. And of course, there's the whole conflict running throughout the movie where he desperately doesn't want to be this great man of history while everyone from this future utopia that he did a large part in making possible are sort of blithely going around telling him about his statue and sort of panting in front of him. Poor, poor Reg Barker. I was just going to say, <laughs> if you're going to do that storyline of the people hero-worshipping this guy... And, like, fainting spells in front of the celebrity of Zephram Cochran. The character you do that with is Reg Barkley. Yeah, that was... Perfect, perfect use of Barkley. Yeah, that was definitely a good pull to uh, get him to do that cameo. So, while they have the engineering crew down there geeking out over Zephram Cochran, do they still have ship's historians in Next Gen? Because they should have someone just camped out observing. <laughs> Like, imagine the anthropological detail, if nothing else, that you'd get just by plopping someone knowledgeable down in any time period. Well, I don't know, if they did have a ship's historian, would she, like, fall in love with Cochrane after he slapped her across the face and then help him take over the ship? Except the Borg are already taking over the ship. Is Data Marla MacGyver's? Wow, I think we've got a breakthrough here. Woo! Man, we, we are taking the analysis on this podcast and kicking it into Warp 9. Woo-wee! Speaking of history, 
In April 2063, there had better be the mother of all Star Trek conventions in Bozeman, Montana. Yeah, April 5th, 2063. Bozeman, Montana. There had better be. And I'm going to try to make it. <laughs> That's like one of those things you put down on your, on your life goals, right? I'm going to go to a Super Bowl. I'm going to go to a WrestleMania. And I'm going to go to the convention in Bozeman, Montana on April 5th, 2063. I mean, sadly, I don't know how many cast members are going to be there. Although, maybe some of the cast members of Star Trek 2017. Who knows? No, the cast members from Star Trek 2035 will be there. Yeah. Or maybe the cast members of Star Trek 2057. The cast members of the hit feature film Star Trek 38. The cast members of Series 10. Ah, uh, we can hope. Although, I mean, we're at the 50th anniversary of Star Trek right now. This will be coming up on the 100th anniversary. Almost. There better be the mother of all conventions somewhere in September 2066. Oh, goodness. <laughs> Except that'll probably be a creation con. I think Bozeman, Montana is more likely to be a fan con. Yeah, the 2066 convention will probably be like that one they do in Vegas every year now. Yeah. Maybe by then they'll actually build the like Enterprise attraction in Vegas that they were talking about in 91. Oh, good lord. Like literally the Mark of Gideon Enterprise in Vegas. <laughs> it's two episodes in a row for a reference to the Mark of Gideon. Welcome to the Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular, everybody. 20 minutes on ship designs and... Two episodes in a row where we reference the Mark of Gideon. Yeah, let's see if we can get it into the uh, Marvel movie episodes. Episodes? Statue? So, while we're talking about the Zephram Cochran portions of this movie, how badly do you think they wanted to get in the astronauts on some kind of Star Trek line? Well, obviously. There's no other reason to include that line. Because it is so, so awkward. I don't think it's that bad. It's fine. It just, it feels really, really shoved in to me. And I mean, of course it is, but it doesn't necessarily need to feel that way. I don't know. I think it works. The only, if I had to criticize it, the only thing I'd say is it draws dangerously close to self-referencing. Like, why would Zephyrin Cochran say... You're all on some kind of Star Trek. Unless, in his history, he watched a television show called Star Trek. Oh, well, they're very careful not to go that far. I think this line is where they come the closest to that. Because it is a bit of an awkward phrasing if you're not used to hearing Star Trek as a thing all the time. Yeah, I mean, it's not a phrase that anyone says. Phrases that from Cochran's. You know, Trek is not a word that people actually use, and it just kind of comes out of nowhere. Mm. I don't think it's that bad. I mean, obviously, they put it in there just to put it in there, but I don't think it stands out as glaringly bad or really obviously shoehorned. So we have the two 21st century characters that we get to know the best, of Cochran and Lily both of whom come from this scared, distrustful era in the 21st century. Why do you say they're scared and distrustful? They don't show that in the movie. 
Well, Lily on the Enterprise assumes that Picard is in some sort of rival faction that's attacked them. That's because she's just been attacked and then kidnapped. She's not distrustful before that. Yeah, but she has particular ideas about what factions might be mounting some sort of attack. Because she's just been attacked and kidnapped. When all these new people show up on the ground, nobody is suspicious or distrustful of them. Also, the general aesthetic sense of all these people kind of crowding around their hovels. Yeah, somehow this refugee camp isn't nearly as overcrowded as all of the ship scenes were in the last movie. All the bridge scenes were just astonishingly overcrowded. This camp doesn't have that problem. Also, Zephyrin Cochran is remarkably cavalier about his limited resources. You'd think at in the post-atomic horror, after the collapse of civilization, where Riker says 600 million dead and most governments don't exist anymore, you'd think he'd be more careful about the limited number of glass liquor bottles he has left. He just starts tossing those things over his shoulder like nobody's business. Well, you know, sometimes when everything's fallen apart and you think the world is ending, or has ended and you're just kind of playing out the string, then you're not all that concerned with conserving resources. Also, he thinks he's going to build this warp ship and then get a lot of money and retire to an island. I suppose. You think maybe some of the other people of the camp would, you know, Hey, Zephram, stop breaking all the liquor bottles! There's no talking to him when he's drunk. Which is all the time, I suppose. <laughs> that is a good line where Lily's like, you can't fly drunk, and Cochran's like, well, I'm not going up there sober. Yeah. And of course they force him to sober up and then drop all this great man of history stuff on him. And of course he's overwhelmed by it. He's drinking before making this trip as it is. <laughs> Even going up into space as someone who might not be a trained astronaut necessarily. He's just a dude with a missile silo, I guess. Yeah, he's just a dude with a missile silo and an idea for a super impeller. Yes. <laughs> Although I still want to know how what Cochran did at First Contact could be possibly construed as good First Contact protocol. Well, the whole species is kind of making it up as they go along. Like, how did this lead to humanity's staunchest ally among the stars? Well, there's something to be said, as some people have pointed out, that the series Enterprise feels a little more like a sequel to First Contact than a prequel to the original series, and you see the relationship the Vulcans and the humans have there. Well, I haven't seen Enterprise since it first aired, but my general impression of that was that the relationship between the humans and the Vulcans wasn't all that well thought out in that series. Like, basically, somebody said Vulcans held us back, and they just based everything else off of that, without actually giving any kind of thought to how it would work or how it would have developed. I'm not going to vouch for the writing or the overall story construction, but I think there's something to the idea that Vulcans can be a bit paternalistic. I don't know if I'd call them paternalistic. And be sort of smug and superior. Well, that's how they're presented a lot of the time, except our heroes. But you can see that growing out of this, where the Vulcans detect someone achieving warp flight and come and investigate, and they find these folks. <laughs> 
I mean, that might be something else that Lily is a little better equipped for than Cochrane at this point. Because even though they've both gone through a lot of experiences in this movie with the next-gen crew who take their future society as granted, Lily's the one who gets it a little better. I mean, at one point, you know, she's just been introduced to this today, and she gets it better than Captain Picard. There might be a really interesting story in looking at this from the Vulcan perspective of how they have all of their ideas tipped on its head. Where they have this idea of, oh, a species has developed warp drive. In order to do that, they must have a unified, peaceful planetary government to direct to the research projects necessary to develop a warp drive ship. Let's go and meet them. And they go and meet them, and they find these scrubby refugees in a post-atomic horror refugee camp. Genius sometimes arises from the least likely workstations. <laughs> I mean, when Vulcans are presented as kind of smug and kind of paternalistic, that's the impression you could very easily imagine them having, that the flashes of brilliance that humans show seem to arise chaotically. I could definitely see some, like, punk human taking the exact opposite view, though. Oh, you had to have 200 years of a peaceful, coexisting, worldwide planetary government before you were able to figure out warp drive? Oh, we did it with one guy in a post-atomic war refugee camp. And he was in it for the money, so pony up. <laughs> that really is a sense that I'm left with, though, that Lily is a little more on top of this stuff than Cochrane is, and she's the one who might be a little better equipped to start the business of actually changing things. When the idea that we're given is that after first contact, everything changes. And when Riker says that, I believe it was Riker, he's probably smudging together about 50 years of history. But I think Lily seems more the sort of person who's set to actually start doing that work, which the movie skips out on because it's a movie, and that's not what it's about. It's about this beginning moment, and then let's leave behind the messy work of creating the future, because now we can go back to the future. Well, Lily is the one, I think, that sees that more than Cochrane. Lily is the one that sees that if we can achieve this, we can use it to start to rebuild ourselves. Cochrane is more about, we can use this to rebuild my fortunes. And I don't mean monetarily, I just mean sort of as as fortunes, as in may fortune favor the bold fortunes. Yes, yeah, sort of existentially, in, in terms of his material reality. Cochrane sees this as a way to improve his circumstances, whereas Lily sees the potential for improving the circumstances of humanity with this new advancement. Then she gets to go see this Enterprise. And, and this huge monster ship that she's told is built without money. Sure, okay, the next generation ideal of we don't use money is always sort of... It always sort of fails any kind of cursory examination. But she's told we have this huge ship and we do it all without money and we're all here just to improve ourselves rather than for monetary gain. And so whatever inkling of a vision she has to begin with is just exponentially expounded upon after seeing this. Yeah, whatever she might have dreamed of, she knows that it's all possible and it's all going to happen. If someone makes it happen. Hmm. 
Now, I know this is your favorite topic. Do you want to talk about the Picard, Cochran, Lily love triangle? There isn't one. <laughs> Come on! There's two male characters and a female character. That's a love triangle. Do you want to talk about the Picard, Data, Borg, Queen love triangle? That's a little bit more explicit, considering they're all trying to seduce each other. Yeah, that's closer. <laughs> they're all trying to seduce each other, although, of course, then again, the correct resolution is for Picard and Data to go off and seduce each other. Do you want to talk about the Picard, the Enterprise, actually doing the right thing to stop the Borg love triangle? You mean when Picard stops breaking his little ships and decides to break his big ship? <laughs> After Lily gives him a good talking to about no longer having the moral rectitude of the TV show The Next Generation. Yeah, that is sort of an explicit point there. It, that is the closest they come to the TV show where Picard starts talking about the moral lessons of Moby Dick. Picard is at his Picardiest when he gets to quote literature, to be fair. Yeah. That, that is sort of a glimpse of TV Picard. I think it's interesting. Because we've talked about how far this movie strays from TV TNG. A lot more than Generations did. This movie is written by Ron Moore and Brandon Bragg. Who are the same people that wrote Generations. Who are the same people that wrote All Good Things. Who are the same people that wrote a lot of episodes of Next Generation. Both separately and together. It's the same TV writers as Generations had. It's the same TV producer, Rick Berman, that Generations had. It's directed by Jonathan Frakes. Not some big-time movie director, but one of the actors of The Next Generation who had directed a handful of Next Generation episodes. It's got the same TV production staff that did The Next Generation TV show and then did The Generations movie. It's all of the same people that made Generations and were slagged on for being TV people trying to make a movie. Somehow none of that TV people trying to make a movie criticism came out about First Contact. I think the thing you can say about First Contact more than anything else is that it just works. It's unified. It's slick. I think slick is a really good word to describe this movie in many ways. And those are things that are very easily seen as lacking in generations. And so it's easy to latch on to those criticisms. Many of those things are things I like about generations. Oh, sure. I don't disagree. I mean, you're basically saying, well, this is more of a departure from the bigger stories that they tried to tell on Next Generation. And this is more of a reduction to action scenes and horror movie tropes and stuff like that. And therefore, people think it's a better movie. Those are the reasons why I did, to the extent that I do dislike this movie, those are the reasons why I dislike it. Yes. I mean, I agree. But also, I'm trying to represent the view of the people who far outnumber us, I think. But also, those are some reasons why I think you can kind of regard First Contact as the beginning of the end of the next generation. It still has some elements. We mentioned a couple of Picard's scenes. Some elements of the Cochrane First Contact story that feel a little more like Next Gen. But in a lot of ways, it's the beginning of the end. It's a regression to the mean, in a way. In terms of movies, not in terms of Star Trek. 
but also in terms of Star Trek movies, sort of. You know, to not only integrate a lot of these different genres and different tropes, but to lean on them so heavily to become more of an action movie. And we'll see through the next-gen movies that this progresses apace. Yes. And so I think ultimately, while this movie on its own is enjoyable, it's a shift that I'm really not comfortable with. And I, I suppose, are we invoking that Onion story? You know, Star Trek fans decry new film as popular, comma, watchable? <laughs> I... maybe? That's hard to judge from inside. I was going to say that you mentioned this exact same thing when we were talking about Rafa Khan. Yeah. That a lot of the criticisms leveled at the J.J. Abrams reboot movies can equally be leveled at a lot of the older movies. You said, Rafa Khan, this is... They got rid of the Star Trek people. They brought in these outsiders that aren't even fans. They didn't even watch the original show. And they're changing the entire tone of it. They're making it more action-oriented. They're making it all about this big space battle. They're, they're, they're changing the entire tone of Star Trek. Which are some of the exact criticisms they level at the J.J. Abrams reboot movies. You could do the same thing with First Contact. That, you know, oh, it's all about the action parts. And, you know, they're getting rid of the ideas. Star Trek is supposed to be about ideas, not just about blowing up the enemy. But... Now, now they're just fighting the Borgs and they're getting rid of the higher ideas. Yeah, there's definitely an element of that. And as much as you can level that against Wrath of Khan, but it's still, on a technical level, a good movie and it's still an enjoyable movie, I think First Contact is, on a technical level, I think the design and direction and acting, certainly are all operating at a high level and all creating a product that is aesthetically and thematically unified. It's just that the direction of those aesthetics and themes feels a little off. I think it's all about the trends. Like, a lot of these Star Trek movies go off in directions, but they all sort of come home at the end. You could do Star Trek Four for a movie... You can do a madcap comedic romp for a movie. As long as Star Trek V isn't more of a madcap comedic romp. And Star Trek VI isn't more of a straight up comedy. And you don't just sort of fall into that trap and get lost in it and forget what you're supposed to be doing. That was in fact one of my criticisms of Star Trek V. Was that they tried to keep that comedic tone and sort of lost track of what they were supposed to be doing until close to the end of the movie. The same thing with First Contact. You can do a movie like First Contact, and it can be fine, and it can be really good, and it can be very entertaining. Then the next movie should have sort of fallen back closer to the mean of Next Generation, rather than continuing down the road that was blazed by First Contact. Yeah, and we will get into the development process of Insurrection quite a bit on the next show, I believe. One thing they did learn from Generations, though, of all of the myriad criticisms against that movie, one of the less substantial ones was at the end of the battle with the Klingon Bird of Prey, where they hype this thing up of 
they'll have a split second of vulnerability while they cloak. And Mr. Wharf, you have to prepare a full spread of torpedoes to hit them as hard as we can during this moment of vulnerability. And then what they do is they fire one torpedo that seems to take forever and ever to get there. Of all the criticisms leveled at Generations, that's the one they seem to have learned from. Because every single time they fire a torpedo in first contact, they fire three or four of them. Every single time. <laughs> when they're attacking the cube, when they blow up the sphere, even when Data goes to blow up the Phoenix. Every single time they fire a torpedo, they fire at least three of them. Hey, they can't have just left those quantum torpedoes kind of floating out in space when they left, right? <laughs> what happens when torpedoes miss their target? They just keep going? Space is big! Is, is that part of the programming of a torpedo? Like, if you haven't impacted your target after two minutes, find the nearest star? One would hope. Or, or they'd, like, go back and collect them. <laughs> Either way. Imagine that. Unexploded ordnance in the field of debris from a space battle. It's like going to an old World War I battlefield, except in three dimensions. Yeah, exactly. One other thing I wanted to hit on here is Jordy in this movie, who, right after invalidating the question of why he wouldn't trade in his visor for something a little more normal in Generations shows up in first contact with something a little more normal. Yeah. I mean, we don't know exactly what the technical aspects. Maybe it's more advanced. Maybe it gives him better sight. But, yeah, he does trade in the giant visor for implants that actually look like eyes. And again, there are lots of production explanations for, you know, they didn't like dealing with the prop, or they wanted LeVar Burton to be able to act with his eyes, finally. Or whatever, but coming so soon after that great scene in Generations, it's something else that just feels off. And it's another way that they're doing all the things from the future and all good things. I don't know that it feels off. I don't think it invalidates that scene in any way, because Jordy isn't saying, I don't want any kind of upgrade, I'm fine like this. He's just saying... The fact that this looks different from regular eyes isn't necessarily a reason for me to get rid of it. If you have something better, then I'll look at it and consider it and maybe use it. I suppose, but the visual of it... I don't know, I just think it's a little off. I don't know, we sort of see through his eyes when he's doing the search for Zephram Cochran. You know, we kind, of, we kind of see his vision. It's almost like a, a heads-up display from a video game where you can, like, zoom in and he's got readouts and shit. Mm. And, like, compared to the vision we got through the visor in Heart of Glory during the Away mission, it definitely seems like it's an improvement to his vision. Well, if we're going by that. Speaking of Away missions, this movie is, I think, the first time where we hew more closely to the original series' tendency of Away missions. Because as soon as they get back to the past and they realize that the Borg have attacked Cochrane's camp, Picard immediately beams down and leaves his underling in charge, rather than Picard staying on the bridge and sending Riker down to deal with everything on the planet. Even though in the end, Picard winds up on the ship and Riker has to deal with everything on the planet. Normally in Next Generation, anytime anything happens, Riker beams down and Picard stays on the ship. In this instance, Picard immediately beams down and leaves Riker up on the ship. 
Maybe it's a little like in All Our Yesterdays, where they travel to the past and have to start acting a little more like people in the past did. <laughs> also, they sort of take a piecemeal approach to precautions about contaminating the time stream. Like, they all request 21st century civilian clothing so they can blend in once they beam down. But they bring the android with them. And and whip out their phasers and tricorders and such. Yeah. And then completely take over the launch complex for the flight of the Phoenix. <laughs> so should we track how Troy is used in these movies? Because in the first movie she crashed the ship and now in this movie she's drunk. Well, she crashed the ship in the process of saving everyone. And in this movie, she's the only one who seems to be able to find Zephram Cochran, and then, you know, gets to know him the only way he'll let her. And then she's operating mission control for the warp flight. <laughs> but yes, we can, we can track that in the, in the next couple of movies, because that's headed off a cliff. It is. Ooh, boy. Couple of scientific pedant notes. Uh, Zephram Cochran says at one point that they're seeing the constellation Leo. Can we get Neil Tyson in here to tell us if that was the right sky? <laughs> On the night of April 4th, 2063? Yeah, and then whether you could see Leo from Bozeman, Montana and all that. <laughs> also, at one point, Picard opens the uh, window, force field, whatever, on the Enterprise and shows Lily the Earth from space and New Zealand doesn't exist. Well, it turns out that's a fairly common thing. There's an entire website devoted to world maps that don't show New Zealand. Uh, yeah, there's a website, worldmapswithout.nz, tracks maps shown in movies and on news reports and all sorts of places that have Australia but not New Zealand. Um, for avid readers of the Wednesday Walk Around the Web, you would have seen that sometime last year. <laughs> We know New Zealand exists in the future because Tom Paris's penal colony is there. Yeah, still, must that must have been one hell of a World War III, though. To temporarily lose New Zealand? <laughs> well, maybe they just rebuild it later, like all those islands off of Dubai. <laughs> maybe it's like Doctor Who. Tom Paris's penal colony is actually on new, 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 new Zealand. But they just call it New Zealand for short. Exactly. During the actual first contact scene, I like the design and the execution of the Vulcan ship as it sort of descends out of the clouds and the landing lights come on and it looks exactly like a UFO for a second, which of course to all the Earthlings it is. Yeah, they are the extraterrestrials come to Earth, except they're not going to be mutilating their cattle. I should hope not. That would be illogical. Especially considering Vulcans are supposedly vegetarians. We should note that much like Star Trek VI, where the communications expert doesn't know languages, in this movie the tactical officer can't handle zero-G maneuvers. Again, denigrating the skills of one of their highest-ranking officers just so they can have a single funny line. They tend to do that with Worf. There's a certain tendency to have him do or say things that stand out as inappropriate or strange just for a laugh. Well, they do a lot in these movies. This communications expert doesn't know languages. The 
supposed security officer or at least former security officer doesn't know about the alarms if you use a phaser set on vaporize the uh, engineer walks straight into a support beam and knocks himself unconscious and the tactical officer can't handle zero g conditions on missions you know there are things that have to be sacrificed for gags the last movie, the whole ship got destroyed by a single bird of prey because they couldn't figure out how to rotate the shield frequency to compensate for the torpedoes busting through the shields. You notice in this movie, now that they're fighting the Borg again, they suddenly remember, hey, let's rotate the frequencies because they frequently adapt. Well, now that they're fighting an, an enemy that they know can do that. Well, yeah, last movie they were just fighting an enemy whose torpedoes passed straight through the shields. There was no reason there to try adjusting the frequency to see if it helped. No, let's just continue getting the shit kicked out of us. Anywho, before we get out of here, like in all these episodes, I would like to talk about the score a little bit. Now, this is the first time that the theme from the motion picture and the next-gen title theme is accompanying the next-gen crew in the film series. Because Jerry Goldsmith is back. Back again. Goldsmith's back, and he brought a friend. His synths? Some, but not as much as you'd think. This is, of course, by Jerry Goldsmith, who was a line item in the budget from the early steps of planning the movie, because they wanted that sense of legitimacy, too, to have him back and have him bringing his themes in. Due to time constraints... He was busy with, I think, The Ghost and the Darkness. His son, Joel Goldsmith, did some scenes. Uh, he got mostly the Borg scenes. A lot of the Borg music in the movie is actually by Joel Goldsmith. And that's actually where a lot of the synths come in as well. Hmm. Which is fair enough for the Borg. And it's not done in a distracting way. I really noticed it in the Klingon theme. When, when War first shows up on the Defiant and then on the Enterprise Bridge... They play the motion picture Klingon theme for him, and it still has all the extra clacking from the last time we heard it in Star Trek V. And it just occurred to me that this is what Star Trek VI would have been if they'd had Goldsmith do it. David Warner would be giving his big, important, portentous speeches, and he'd be underscored by clacking. Okay, the Klingon theme is used three times in this movie, and there's only clacking the first time. You know, it sort of accents it in the action-oriented variation during the Borg battle at the beginning of the movie. But it's used again when Worf comes on the bridge to signify that he's a Klingon, in case you hadn't heard. And again during the first fight with the Borg in the corridor. And neither of those times does it have the clacking. Mm. Which I suppose is something of a turning point. <laughs> This is, of course, Goldsmith's return to the film series rather shortly after he wrote the highly acclaimed theme for Voyager as well. That was highly acclaimed? People love the Voyager theme, yeah. I've heard good arrangements of the Voyager theme, but the one that was actually used on the Voyager TV show was not one of them. That theme in particular is very popular. At least among fans. Among Star Trek fans and Star Trek music fans. Which might be a niche of a niche, but hey, that's where I am. They keep, like, bringing him back after they have him do a TV theme. 
Well, he had nothing to do with the next-gen theme. That was all, you know, arranged by Dennis McCarthy after someone decided to use that as the theme. After Dennis McCarthy had already written and recorded another theme. But that's neither here nor there. I would have preferred to have Dennis McCarthy do this movie. I'm sure you would. That's my own taste. I am not a huge fan of Goldsmith, and as time goes on, his Star Trek scores get worse and worse. I still think this is a really good one. This has really good moments. I wouldn't call it a good score. And by moments, I literally mean moments. I mean like 15 to 20 seconds. Other than the main theme, and maybe the end titles, because that's just the motion picture theme and the first contact theme played with each other. Other than those two tracks, there isn't really any entire track I would say is good. There are moments that are good. But overall, I'm not a fan. There are a bunch of other tracks that I really like. Of course, the main feature of the score is the new main theme over the main titles. Which which, is great. Which is great, yeah. And which comes to fruition, really, during the actual first contact scene. It's something that embodies the hopeful side of the movie. Which is one reason why it doesn't come up a whole lot. (laughs) It's used a handful of times, but when it is, it really has an impact. The Borg theme, in a lot of its arrangements, is neither here nor there. There's one moment when the escape pods are launching from the Enterprise, and the Borg theme kind of blossoms into its fullest arrangement. Almost like a hero version of the Borg theme, because in that moment, they seem to be winning. They've taken over the Enterprise, and our heroes are abandoning ship. And that theme really blossoms, and I just love, love that track. That is the one track that I loved from the movie that wasn't on the original CD that I was waiting for the expanded version to hear without the various compromises that are made when you get bootlegs of these things. Yeah, I'm not a fan of the bootlegs. First Contact had a decent bootleg. I don't know if you're going to a ton of bootleg score discussion. I don't know if that's what our podcast audience is for. But you know what? Name's on the door. Every bootleg I've listened to is just filled with sound effects and echoes of dialogue. And none of it just... And none of it sounds good. See... There's a difference between bootlegs sourced from, like, the surround channels of a DVD or a Blu-ray that are going to have sound effects and, like, echoes of dialogue and surround dialogue or whatever, and bootlegs sourced from actual bootlegged copies of the recording sessions. First Contact had a decent bootleg because it was from the recording sessions, although the sound was still compromised and the arrangement of tracks was a little unfortunate sometimes. The legitimate expanded edition from GNP Crescendo Records is a really nice arrangement, and of course sounds great, because it's part of this whole series of all of the expanded scores that was a priority. I also enjoy some of the uses of the motion picture theme in this movie. There are only a couple of them in situ, like outside of the end titles, But that's something else that kind of has an impact. Like I said before, it's identifying the Enterprise. It's, you know, kind of a stamp on the movie. A stamp of familiarity, really. And when it's accompanying the Enterprise arriving at the battle in the beginning of the movie, I think that's a really 
exciting version. And the uses of that in the body of the score, not just the main titles or the end credits, are kind of decreasing as time goes on. So I value them when they do appear. And that's a real problem as time goes on, because this is the last time Goldsmith writes a new theme for one of the films that's really good. The insurrection theme is okay at best, and God, nemesh it. I disagree, but we'll get there when we get to the other movies. He also brings back the four-note questing motif from The Final Frontier, and uses it as early as the main title. It kind of drifts in and out between readings of the Alexander Courage fanfare and the main title, and then it accompanies a lot of the gentler scenes during the movie that aren't scored by the main First Contact theme, or it's a prelude to the First Contact theme in some situations. And that's something that he continues for his other Star Trek scores as well. And Joel Goldsmith's music, again, like I said, is mostly for the Borg scenes, and that's all solid enough. He does get one highlight when they're launching the Phoenix toward the end of the movie. That is a really nice propulsive track. I think it really highlights him a little more than some of the other Borg music, because that's not music that's really made to turn my engines on as much. But during the launch of the Phoenix, he works in some really nice, really subtle versions of that main motion picture title march. That track is one... It works really well in the movie, but it's really frustrating to listen to on the soundtrack. Because in the movie, they're cutting back and forth from the Phoenix to the Enterprise, to the Phoenix to the Enterprise. They're on the Phoenix, and then they're on the Enterprise trying to get Data to turn on them. And then they're on the Phoenix getting ready to go to warp, and then they're on the Enterprise, and Data's getting ready to fire torpedoes. And then they're on the Phoenix, and they're just about ready to go to warp, and then they're on the Enterprise, and Picard is trying to convince Data not to fire the torpedoes. And in the movie, the score really works, because each scene is scored well. On the soundtrack, it's really frustrating because you get like 20 seconds of good stuff on, of the Phoenix side and then you go back to this brooding, heavy Borg music and then you go back to 20 or 30 seconds of this really good Phoenix music and then you go back to the heavy, brooding Borg music. So it's not a good listening experience on its own. Well, that I tend not to mind as much, but maybe there's some massaging to be done there. I find that's a similar frustration I have with a lot of Goldsmith tracks. Not specifically because the scene switches back and forth and back and forth, and so you get the two very different musical feels where you just want two or three or four straight minutes of that Flight of the Phoenix music, but you don't get that. You get 30 seconds of one, and then the heavy Borg music, and then 35 seconds, and then the heavy Borg music. I find that's a very similar frustration I have with a lot of Goldsmith tracks, especially once you get into Insurrection and Nemeshit, that there's like 20 seconds of good stuff but there's never, like, four or five sections of 20 seconds of good stuff in a row. It's 20 seconds, and then a gap of crap, and then 15 seconds, and then a gap of crap, and then 30 seconds, and then a gap of crap. There's, like, not enough good stuff there to be worth listening to this eight-minute track. Well, you are, as always, rather harsher on the Goldsmith stuff than I tend to be. So, we'll track that in the other movies, too. I am certain... I did not have a good experience trying to find musical selections for the music bumpers for our upcoming podcasts on Insurrection and Nemeshit, and that might have turned my opinion even more critical of these scores. But we'll get there. Man, you'd hope we'd think a little better of these things after the podcasts. 
I think better of a lot of the movies after the podcast, and I think worse of some of the others. Speaking of how we think differently about these movies after the podcasts, this is the first movie since Star Trek V that shows any of the crew in civvies. It's 21st century civvies, but it's still civvies. Sure. How are their lapels looking? I don't remember taking specific notice of anybody's lapels. I mean, I should hope Dr. Crusher would have had epic lapels, right? <laughs> or at least a sensible scarf. <laughs> okay, I think we've gone sufficiently around the bend on this. That will be all for our discussion of Star Trek First Contact today. We will be back in two weeks' time with our discussion of Star Trek Insurrection. In the meantime, check out all our other episodes on the Star Trek movies. You can find those at placetobenation.com slash Star Trek. If you would like to find me online, you can do so on the Twitter or the Tumblr at Bun. You can find me on Facebook. You can find the Place to Be Nation pages on Facebook as well if you would like to register an opinion. If you have any comments or especially questions about any of this, I would love to do, once this movie series is done, I would love to have like a Star Trek mailbag episode. If you have any questions or questions slash comments, topics for discussion that you want us to hit on about the whole Star Trek franchise, not just the films, that we can do after this film series is wrapped up, I would love to hear from you. So, reach out and touch me, people. Alright, that'll really do it for us. We'll be back soon with Insurrection. Check out any other episodes we've got. Check out the website. Check yourself out. You deserve it. Good night. stop recording now. Fuck me.